Thank you. You may be seated in preparing our message as we launch into Matthew chapter 18 this morning. I was um, thinking about how concerned we are about aging in our culture, how we fight against that, and how it is inevitable that one day we are old and our culture just um, has such a hard time dealing with that. You know, 60s, the new 40, and, and all the products and programs that you can be on to fight aging, but inevitably we grow old. And it reminded me of the three sisters who lived together for a number of years in their old age. They were, in fact, um, the youngest was 92, uh, the middle was 94, and the eldest was 97. One morning, the 97-year-old drew her bathwater and was one foot in the tub when she yelled out, was I getting in or was I getting out? <laughs> and the 94-year-old who was downstairs hollered up and said, uh, wait a minute and I'll come and help you. So she left the kitchen and started up the stairs. And of course, halfway up, she stopped on the landing and stood there for a moment. And then she called out, was I going up or was I coming down? And the youngest sister, who's 92 years old, was sitting at the kitchen table having a cup of tea, and she was listening to all of this with her sisters, and now one of them now stuck with one foot in and one foot out of the tub, the other uh, in indecisiveness on the stairway landing, and she shook her head and she said, goodness, I hope that my memory never gets as bad as theirs, and she reached over and said, knock on wood, as she knocked the t on the table. And then she yelled out to her sisters, uh, I'll come up and help you both as soon as I find out who's knocking at the front door. <laughs> and the good news is this. In Matthew chapter 18, as our Lord begins the fourth section of the fourth major teaching section of the Gospel of Matthew, we are called to become like children. So one thing we need to do today is we need to think not about aging, but we need to think about what does it mean to have the mindset, the heart, and the faith of a child. Uh, you'll recall that there are five sections of significant discourse in the Gospel of Matthew where our Lord teaches in depth. We're on the fourth one, the fifth. The remaining one is the one that you know the best, maybe, apart from the Sermon on the Mount, the very first one. Um, that is the Olivet Discourse that's coming up in the later chapters of 25-26. Um, that is all about our Lord's specific teaching about the end times and the last days and how they will unfold. It's fascinating. Um, and we'll look forward to being there. But even now, as our Lord, pouring himself into the lives of his disciples, trying to capture their minds and their hearts in preparation for just a few months from now when he will be crucified, buried, rise again, then ascend 40 days later into heaven. They will be on their own. The Holy Spirit will come and they will be uh, the greatest preachers and church planters and missionaries the world has ever known. And he's pouring himself into them with instruction on what it is to live for God's kingdom, what it looks like, this great salvation in Christ what it's going to be like. We're only going to bite off the first six verses of chapter 18 as we begin. There is some very interesting teaching in chapter 18 and 19. Um, you're going to see later on, we'll not take time to point it out today, but there is a th common thread through this teaching. But we need to think in terms of our Lord teaching specifically to our disciples 
and speaking specifically to this point of what it means to take on a childlike nature. What does that mean? Let's read our text. It's Matthew chapter 18. And we begin with verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child then, Jesus took the child and put him in the midst of them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Once again, as I put on the top of your notes there, if you uh, enjoy using the notes and find it helpful, please do. What I see as we open up to chapter 18 is just what we've been finding in Matthew all along. More surprising and unusual teaching by our Lord. What does it mean? What is he teaching? What does it mean to become like a child? How is it that the greatest in the kingdom is like a child? Um, The first thing we need to see has to do with the disciples and their mindset as really what our Lord is calling them to is an attitude check. He's calling his disciples to an attitude check here and in, in essence is calling us to check our attitudes this morning. So that's a lot what he's speaking towards. The first thing I want you to see, number one, is the seductive dream of notoriety that the disciples are dealing with. The, dis, the dis, seductive dream of notoriety. We don't see it the way Matthew opens his text. He just stages this teaching with a question from the disciples to Jesus. The disciples asked Jesus, who's the greatest in your kingdom? All right? And so you can see how our Lord uses that as the segue of a living illustration of picking up a nearby child, and he wants to point out to them, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you need to be like this child. But if you read Mark chapter 9, you have a better grasp of the contrast of what our Lord is talking about here because really the disciples have just blown it. They really have a wrong attitude and Mark brings that out very clearly in his parallel passage. So let's take just a minute and turn to Mark chapter 9 and we begin with verse 33 where Mark checks in on this passage and he records on the childlike teaching of our Lord that the disciples um, had come to the house and Jesus had asked them, Verse 33 of Mark 9, Jesus asked them when they got in the house, what were you discussing on the way? So now we know they had been traveling to Capernaum and they were talking. All right, so how many of you think that Jesus knew what they were talking about before he asked them? All right, so if you don't get anything else out of Matthew, would you get this out of Matthew after 39 years in Matthew? Don't mess with Jesus. All right, he's the master of the universe. And I hope you get at least that much out. He knows what they were thinking. They were discussing. Notice what Mark adds in verse 34. But they kept silent. Okay, they were humiliated and they were embarrassed, a little bit sheepish because they realized they haven't slipped one past the Lord again um, in any way. They never could. They never did. But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another 
about who was the greatest in the kingdom. I take this as a repeated conversation that they had, because we are going to see it again in Matthew, where these guys, in, in all of their strength of maleness, uh, all of their misconception of what the kingdom is, desiring to be prestigious by the world's standards, filled with fleshly arrogance and pride, are bantering and arguing over who is going to be the greatest. No, 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 it can't be you. It has to be me. Ba, 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 ba. No, 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 no. Then they actually, I take it, get to arguing to the point that they're kind of miffed at each other so that when Jesus asks the question, it's just quiet. Well, I'm not talking. Those idiots. They know I'm the greatest. Matthew stages it back to Matthew 18 with the simple question. Evidently, out of that silence, somebody speaks up and says, Lord, Maybe you can help us. Who's the greatest in your kingdom? So this, the question is staged. Uh, doesn't that now make you understand that with all of this arrogance, this prideful fleshly approach, that our Lord then would look over and he would see a little child and he would pick it up and he said, let me, let me teach you boys something here. Uh, a little side note is... I think worth noting, and that is the comfort with which children came to Jesus. You know, in Eastern cultures, men often shoo the children away. I've seen that in Malawi, Africa. You little rotten kids, get out of here. I made that up. That's not really what it said. but That's how they act. Right in the middle of a church service. Get rid of the kids. Get them out of here. And we've seen that reflected in the... Disciples as well, haven't we? Get rid of the kids. No, let the little children come unto me. Our Lord, um, children were safe with him. It's a good lesson there. He picks up and we see number two, the surprising face of true humility. The surprising face of true humility. He's making a contrast now and he's marking the contrast from the arrogant arguing of the disciples to the simplistic faith and trust Of a little child. You want to see what a great person in the kingdom of God looks like? And he holds up a child. Now you need to understand that the word for child here is the word for a very young child, uh, probably a toddler. Even a toddler. There's another word for a child that's starting to get bigger and stronger. So as a very little child, perhaps in its mother's arms, perhaps old enough to run around a little bit at their legs, and he reaches over, he takes the child, the disciples are gathered around, and he has this child evidently in his hands and on his lap, and he begins to teach. Now you need to know, too, then, that this illustration is spiritual. It's not literal. It's a spiritual story here. It's a, it's an illustration where our Lord looks at them and he's calling them to be like a child, not to become a child or not necessarily act childish, but it is to be like a child. Now, as our Lord, the master teacher does so often, he throws that out there and then you're supposed to think a little bit, okay, what's a child like? It's a little bit like I picked a picture here of childlike faith. Okay, you're supposed to ponder that now. Okay, so how is it that a child manifests the qualities that, spiritually speaking, I am to have in my life, and that is the kind of person that is great in the kingdom, or enters the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, and is great? And you think about that. 
Uh, This picture reminds me of a story I've told you many times about our daughter Tasha, who's now 32 years old and has four of her own children. And uh, when she was three, four, five years old, she was so fun at that age um, because she was fearless and she would do stuff with me. Um, Like if I was speaking at a teen camp and they had a water slide, she would lie on my back grab fistfuls of meat out of the back of my neck and down the water slide we would go and when we'd get to the bottom and wipe out in the pool at the bottom and I'd find her and hold her up and shake her off and she would say, again, daddy, again. And she just loved for me to throw her up in the air and catch her and and the part I told you many times is I was in my mother-in-law's kitchen and I grabbed her and I would put her up on the refrigerator and then I'd get down on my knees and she would jump down and I would catch her and about a six foot fall, you know, when I was down low, I'd get real low to the floor she would hike her little buns up the NC edge of the refrigerator and off she would come and down I would catch her again daddy again I put her up there what she complete trust complete confidence complete faith no question about this so one time I grabbed Janet and set her up there <laughs> it didn't work well it didn't go well from then on it didn't end well she didn't jump just, I could have caught her Just that faith of a child, right? You know, before we go on, though, let's do one more thing. We have this phrase, again, in our teaching, the kingdom of heaven. And let's make sure that we understand. We've encountered this in the Gospel of Matthew before. We've defined it before, but it is a little bit... I don't know what the right word is. It's a a slippery concept to maybe get our minds wrapped around. Um, It is a spiritual concept. What is the kingdom of heaven? Now, one of the things we need to understand is remember that Matthew was writing to the Jews. And when he wrote to the Jews, he was writing to people who were steeped in Judaism. They believed the Old Testament. They weren't sure who Messiah was, um, but they had a high view of God and the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And they believed that his name was so sacred that you should avoid saying it out loud. And you should, you should be very, very careful. There is a lesson there for us, but they were almost like superstitious about saying and speaking the very names of God. And so when they came to the, to this concept of Matthew writing about the kingdom of God, which it is phrased in other gospels, it's repeated as the kingdom of God, Matthew wrote to his list uh, audience and he left the word or name God off and he put in heaven and they all knew that he was talking about the kingdom of God. Now I think that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are synonymous terms. I think that it is re- representative. It is the, the, like the sum total or sphere of all that, that is of God. It is his right way, it is his kingdom, which I'm using the word to define the word, but it is a little bit hard. It is God and his way over which he rules, uh, apart from all evil. uh, And and, then he's talking now here about entering the kingdom of heaven, or entering the kingdom of God. And I think the idea is, for us, would understand that as a way of speaking of salvation. I think it's safe for us to understand that if you use the phrase, for those who would enter the kingdom of heaven, that is the same as saying someone who would enter into salvation with God and become a child of God. I recognize some of you are thinking at a a deeper level, okay, then what is the church? 
If, if there's a kingdom, we are part of the church age. And this is actually a parenthesis, by the way, in God's timeline. The prophets of old didn't see it coming. Um, but the church is, is not specifically the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, but the church is, in my opinion, part of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It is something within the kingdom of God. All right, so we are specifically the church. And Christ is our pastor, our shepherd, our savior. All right. And we are born again by going to the cross. And there at the cross, the blood of Christ was shed for our sin, all sin, past, present and future. And there's no way of works of entering into that salvation just by grace, by putting our faith and trust in Christ. We are saved and we are part of the body of Christ or the church, which is within the kingdom of God is how I think of it. It's a little bit complicated, and I'm not sure that there's not more to it, but for us, for our, our purposes today, I want you to understand that as we talk about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the sphere of all that is God's domain, and within it is his program. How are you going to enter into God's way, into God's program, into God's sphere of rule and control? That's what he's talking about. I understand it to be salvation. How, how do you enter into this salvation? Well, we've seen the seductive dream of notoriety that the disciples had, which sets the stage for the surprising face of humility and what it is that it looks like to be great in the kingdom of God. It's a child. Jesus is using this as an illustration, a child like a toddler. The illustration is spiritual, not physical or literal. I say to you, become like a child, speaking to adults, the next thing we see in verse 3 is we see that there is an exclusive door, an exclusive door of opportunity to enter the kingdom. Okay, so let's go. Who is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? The disciples asked that question. Verse 2, and calling to him a child. Here's the illustration. All right, the face of humility. Truly I say to you, verse 3, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter. There's the door. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right. And so you have the idea of of an entryway. How do I get in there? How do I enter? I want to emphasize I picked the word exclusive on purpose and the idea of a door. The Lord has used this illustration himself in John's gospel. Jesus is called a door in John's gospel. He's called the way, the truth and the life. He is the way to salvation. Jesus alone is the way into this kingdom. You can't get there yourself. You can't figure out a way to become humble like a child. It only comes through Christ. It's what our Lord has been teaching all along in Matthew. And to illustrate this point, Matthew writes in there, he said, Truly I say to you, unless you, look how the ESV translates the next word, unless you turn and then become like, you turn. The word turn is an interesting word. The New American Standard translates it to convert unless you convert. Now we're talking language that we understand, isn't it? To convert or the NIV uses the words to change or be transformed. Let's take just a minute and let me show you how this word is used in other passages in our New Testament. Acts chapter 3, for example, it's not far away and we'll just hurriedly take a look here. Acts chapter 3, looking at verse Verses 17 to 21, this is Peter preaching, and, and he's uh, preaching in Jerusalem, uh, 
And he says, now, brothers, Acts 3, verse 17, I know that you acted in ignorance. He's talking about their past lives, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, verse 18, Acts chapter 3, that his Christ would suffer, and he thus fulfilled it. And then he says, verse 19, look at this, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's a good, good quote. Turn and repent. There's language that we understand. Notice that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, if you want to turn there, you may. Otherwise, just listen. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, the same exact word is used in the, in the sentence structure. And the Apostle Paul is writing the Thessalonian believers and he's reminding them of their testimony of the past. And he said, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There it is again. You turned you converted, you changed, you transformed. You used to serve idols, but now you have turned. And the idea of repentance is in there as well. That's what repentance means, by the way. It's to acknowledge that I'm going the wrong direction, admit it, deal with it, and then turn and go the right direction. I have changed, I have repented, um, I have turned. And so we see this exclusive door of opportunity uh, is there, he says, um, the idea is it's not like you can just come in any way you want. All right. Because there is presented number four, the obvious other possibility. Look what he says. The other possibility in the sentence is that if you turn and become like a child or you will never enter. See, you will never enter. And he, he's teaching backwards in the negative there. In contrast to becoming like a child, there is no other option. You either do this or you will never enter the kingdom. It's an exclusive. That's what I mean by an exclusive claim. This is one thing that people hate about the teaching of Christ is the exclusivity of it. That it alone is the right way. It is an exclusive truth. Truth by definition has to be exclusive for one thing. But it irritates people in our, in our, the mindset of modernity and postmodernity is the idea that we can live with irrational thoughts. And that is that something can be true for you that's not true for me, and it all contradicts each other, and it doesn't matter, and it's all good. And we don't even care where we got it. We made it up. And so when you come along and you say, listen, that cannot be. You cannot get to heaven that way. Well, who are you to tell me? Well, I'm nobody, but I'm telling you what Jesus said is that, that the face of one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the face of a toddler and there is an other option, and the other option is that you will never enter. That's a serious matter. So the obvious other possibility is that you will never enter. There are not many ways to God, and Christ is indeed teaching for change, isn't he? He's teaching for change. He's teaching to turn and repent in reaction to his message. He then moves on. And he gives us the highest rank of spirituality in his kingdom. Look what he says. Here's the highest rank. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, though, verse 4, humbles himself like this child, and he's still holding the child there, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There it is. You want the highest rank in the 
kingdom of heaven? You want to be the greatest? Okay, remember the context of the teaching. The disciples are walking down the road, pushing each other and shoving each other and carrying on and arguing. I'm the greatest. No, you're the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. You're the greatest. You know, no, you're not the greatest. You're just a proud, arrogant sinner. That's what you are. And you can't get into the kingdom on your own. The only way you can get into the kingdom is to become like a child and have that complete faith and trust in your father. That's it. That's it. And the highest rank, the greatest here is that which matters or is significant. It's not the one who deserves the applause. That's the audience applauding me. And my Cubs for winning. I really am a Cubs fan, by the way. Um, I'm especially a Cubs fan right now. I grew up in South Chicago and I did like the Cubs and I still have a Cubbies hat at home. The one who receives the applause, is that the greatest? No, that's not the one. And so what you have here, you see, is you have people who no one, maybe no one ever knows, nobody who ever speaks from a pulpit, someone who is unknown and nameless could be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You want the highest rank, you disciples? You're going to argue who's going to sit at the right hand? Then then you just die to self, get over your arrogance, repent of that, turn away, and turn away all of that human fleshliness into a spiritual faith and dependence on God alone. And so we notice once again in the teaching of our Lord that when you want to go up, you have to give up. Spiritually speaking, Our Lord teaches regularly, doesn't it? To die to self. To find life, you have to die. To go up, you you have to give up. Notice once again, to go up, one must give up. We have then this interesting litmus test that we see in verse 5 of hospitality. It's very interesting when you look at this. Okay, so you want to see the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Notice this toddler right here. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And what's interesting here is he's continuing to teach about those who are identified with the kingdom or with his heavenly father. They are children of God. And the litmus test is one of hospitality. That is, the idea of receives here, translated welcomes in your NIV. This is actually a word of hospitality and his audience would have understood that. It's a hospitality kind of word. This idea translated receive in the ESV has the idea of welcoming in an honored guest. To welcome in an honored guest. You know how that is. The doorbell rings. Oh, they're here. They're here. And you go and you open the door and come into our home and you're on your best behavior and everything looks great and you're seeing all of your house and property through the lens of your honored guest and you're thinking, oh no, I should have done this and they see those cobwebs up there and (laughs) no, they don't. They don't care. And so you bring in your honored guest and and you just offer them the the finest hospitality you have, right? May I offer you a drink of water? What would you like? Meal will be ready soon. Sit here in this chair. Just to, to welcome them in, to receive them in. It's a word of hospitality. And what does he go on to teach? He said, whoever would receive then such a child. What is such a child? Such a child is one who has put aside the flesh, put aside arrogance, put aside self-reliance, put put aside pride, and is completely dependent upon their Heavenly Father for everything that they are, everything that they can be, everything that they will be. 
And they have come in. And if you receive such a person as this, in other words, a brother or sister in Christ, someone who's in the kingdom with you, somebody who's entered into God's salvation with you. And if if you receive them with this kind of hospitality, that's how you receive me. In other words, the way that we treat other Christians is the way that we treat Christ. We're going to see this taught again. It's kind of a scary thought. You know, because I just don't like that guy over there and those people over there. and those people, I like these people better, but they're all my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is, a, this is an interesting teaching here. All right, you enter the kingdom with this, this humility, this childlike faith. You want to be great. Just take on this, this persona, spiritually speaking, of a child. And then when you receive one like that, that is the test with how you receive me. He goes on then and he says, but by the way, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, and I don't think he's talking specifically about children, as horrific as it is to abuse young children, and I think there is probably a special place of torment for people like that. But he's speaking, I think, specifically about spiritual babes in Christ, people who could be adults but who have come into the kingdom. Don't cause them to sin. One of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Listen, this is the extreme cost of impropriety that he's talking about here. The extreme cost of impropriety. The idea of causing one to sin is the idea of causing them to stumble. I'm not 100% sure I understand exactly what Jesus is teaching here. Because I know as a born-again Christian, as I'm secure in my salvation, that I cannot, if I offend you, and we're going to have deep teaching now after this on dealing with sin, both in my life and other people's life. This is the section next week of pucking out your eye, cutting your hand off if you sin. It's radical, it's extreme, it's important. It's a little bit hard to understand. But if, if I am in the kingdom and a new babe in Christ comes in the kingdom and I cause you to stumble, our Lord says it's better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you be cast in the deepest part of the sea. Clearly, it's a serious thing. And, and, and in my notes, number seven is, this is the, uh, number seven, the extreme cost of impropriety. Number eight, the tragic thought of all eternity. I believe that he's talking about eternal damnation here, but I know you can't lose your salvation. So I'm going to have to work on that a little bit. Um, At the least, this test of how I treat another person who's in the kingdom, who's in Christ, a person who has such childlike faith that they have entered into this salvation that it is equal to how I treat Christ, at the least, there shouldn't be any division among this body. At the least, we should really be careful how we handle one another in interpersonal relationships, shouldn't we? At the least, if I have a born-again wife who's in the kingdom, the way I treat her is the way I would treat Christ. Wow. And at the least... 
to not treat her appropriately or another person in the kingdom, another person in the church, another person who's entered into this salvation, there is, it is at least serious enough that the Lord uses the word picture of a gristmill stone that has a hole in it, taking that bad boy, putting it around your neck like a big stone donut and dumping you in the deepest part of the sea. That means it's really, really bad to do it. How's that for a paraphrase? So his audience would have completely understood this. This large table rock of stone that would have been chiseled with some grooves in it. And then on top of that would have been laid another big stone, which had a hole in the middle of it, like a big stone donut, as I said. And then it had some attachments to it so that a donkey or an oxen could, could work and work its way around in a circle. The hole in the middle of the top stone, the gristmill stone, would have been to be able to pour whole grain in there. And then it worked its way between the, in the feathered out through the stone, and then it created the grist. It worked it, and, and it made it into flour. And so that stone, the listening audience would have clearly understood it, and most of us have, have seen those in antique shops or in somebody's backyard from days of old. A big stone, hundreds of pounds, a hole in the middle of it. Take that and put it on your neck like a donut, a collar, and dump them in the deepest part of the sea. Very, very serious. Very, very serious. So this call for, of Christ for childlike humility, what do we get out of it? As we launch chapter 18 in these verse, first six verses, at the least, at the least, doesn't it magnify our natural inclination toward pride and arrogance? Don't you feel it in the passage? Don't you feel the contrast? Don't you identify with the disciples? Hey, hey, going to be great in the kingdom? Yeah, I'm great in the kingdom. I'm Texas Ranger Walker, man. I'm cool. I'm the man. I get you. Been watching some reruns lately. It's like, yeah, man, it's good. Don't we identify with just this bent towards a self-love and an arrogance and a pride that, that makes me be disgusted with people around me and, and makes me amplify the error of people around me. And when I amplify and magnify the error of people around me, what am I saying? I could never do that because I'm smarter and better and greater than you. You're so stupid that you do that. And just this whole attitude relationally that is, that is corrupted by the pride of our hearts and our minds and our flesh. Certainly our Lord is addressing here our propensity to pride. And it magnifies it there as we see ourselves in the disciples and not in the baby. Secondly, I think it forces us to evaluate our attitude towards those around us. It forces us to evaluate our attitude of those around us. I've already talked about this. If, If the litmus test is a hospitality test for other kingdom livers and uh, other kingdom people, livers, that sounds like chicken livers or something, other kingdom livers, other people who live in the kingdom. My attitude towards brothers and sisters in Christ is extremely important. And that Christ would transform my thinking And make me into this 
individual of childlike faith and grace and belief. They'll run to anybody. Everybody's okay from the mind of a child. And it forces me to evaluate some of the ways in relationships around me with those who I understand to be children of God are sinful and wrong. It also, number three, challenges us to guard against any stumbling influences. I put stumbling with quotes that the idea of causing one to sin is the idea of causing one to stumble, to not direct them correctly. What a serious thing it is for me to be a source of spiritual discouragement to any other person. For me, in any way, to turn somebody away from a focus on Christ. This is a very serious matter. That the arena in which I live would not be all about Jesus, but that in any way it would misdirect my children, it would misdirect my grandchildren, it would misdirect or misguide my neighbors, it would misdirect my church. I'm still going to keep trying to study this passage. We're just getting into chapter 18, and it's going to get even more extreme. But I know that Jesus is pretty serious about what he's saying. I wonder if you've been to the cross and with childlike faith, you've bowed your head and admitted your sinfulness and asked God to cleanse you of all your sin and make you his child. That's language we understand, isn't it? To be a child of God. Here it is. It's the only way. There is no other way. Or you will never enter the kingdom of God. Let's stand together and close in prayer. With your heads bowed, I think there's maybe two ways that we should end our service. Just thinking about the response to this surprising and unusual teaching of our Lord is, am I treating those around me who know Christ, who are children of my Heavenly Father, who have had a childlike faith, am I treating them the way I would treat Christ? Or am I duplicitous? And why? And ask God to take care of that matter for you. Show you how to respond properly in relationships. Secondly, have you become like a child? Have you put away pride and arrogance and humbled your heart? And just jumped off the refrigerator into Jesus' arms with complete and total dependence upon Him for your salvation. If not, right now you can do that. Just tell God you know you're a sinner and you're putting all of your faith, all of your trust in what Jesus did at the cross for you. And you enter the kingdom of God with childlike faith. Can't explain it all, don't understand it all, but like a child, I believe it all. And you enter in. Father, you know our thoughts, our minds, our hearts. I pray that you would accomplish your purposes in us. I thank you for this passage of yet another unusual teaching of our Lord. Would you help us to mull it over, to meditate and to ponder? to understand the lesson we're supposed to learn of what childlike faith looks like. Check our attitudes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.